This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today's program with Dean of Berkeley School of Law, constitutional scholar Erwin Chemerinsky, to discuss the just completed Supreme Court term that saw decisions that overturned vast areas of law. The court's decisions ignored settled law or precedent, and in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, a constitutional right was taken away. Dean Chemerinsky argues that this court did not follow a judicial methodology, legal principles, or precedents. Instead, a conservative majority on the court is making the Republican Party platform constitutional law. We'll get Irwin's analysis and ask what can be done. We then turn to Britain, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson has finally been forced to resign, brought down by Tory ministers who decided Johnson's personality and unethical conduct had gotten in the way of his politics, which they mostly support. Tarek Ali joins us with the details of this saga. He says that the Tories have been ruthless in dumping prime ministers who might lose them the next election. Think Thatcher, May, and now Johnson. But Labour is only ruthless in removing a leader who poses a threat to the extreme centre. Under Keith Starmer, Labour has not challenged Johnson's political record or presented an attractive alternative to the Tories. So Boris Johnson is going... But Britain is still stuck with the same right-wing nightmare. We get Tarek's analysis. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Well, the Supreme Court, in its just completed term, handed down bombshell assaults on precedent, on settled law, and on rights enjoyed by the population for 50 years or more. The constitutional right to abortion is gone. The state's ability to regulate guns is gone. Constraints enforcing the separation of church and state are gone, including the ban on prayer in public schools. The EPA's Right to regulate greenhouse gases is gone. Tribal sovereignty against state intrusion is gone. Vast areas of law, in other words, were overturned by this court in just a few months. Well, I've invited Dean of Berkeley School of Law, Erwin Chemerinsky, to join us today to give us the benefit of his characteristic clarity and analysis on the spate of decisions marking the just completed Supreme Court term. Dean Chemerinsky has written that these decisions were marked by judicial activism, dramatically changing constitutional law, moving it in a conservative direction for the first time after more than half a century of expansion of constitutional rights. A constitutional right has been taken away, and Irwin cautions that even worse is in store for next term. He writes, this was not about justices following a judicial methodology, legal precedent, or principles. This was a conservative majority on the court making the Republican platform constitutional law. We're going to get Irwin Chemerinsky's analysis and ask what can be done. But before, I just want to introduce him properly. Erwin Chemerinsky is the dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law. His latest book in 2021, I don't know if that is the latest, maybe another one has come out, is Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights. And in 20, 
20 with Howard Gilman. He published The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State, and before that in 2014, The Case Against the Supreme Court. And you may have seen Dean Chemerinsky's op-ed pieces, which appear frequently in the LA Times and elsewhere. So, Erwin, welcome to the program. Let's begin with your interpretation of this completed terms decisions, how you see them in terms of the court's history, and then we can look at the individual cases decided and what's to come. I just want to say in Slate Magazine, Mark Joseph Stern reviewed the decision and was obliged to speak of devastating assaults and teed up bombshells culminating in the lethal overturning of Roe. And Dahlia Lithwick calls the decisions cruel, lawless, untethered from fact, science, and objectivity, and contemptuous of the regulatory state. Erwin, your own articles and op-eds point to the radicalism of these decisions and their historic significance. So just to begin, how do you characterize this term and contextualize it in terms of the history of the court? I think all the quotes you just read describe the term and contextualize it. It's unlike any other term in our lifetime. The only term that I can analogize it to was in 1937, when the Supreme Court overruled 40 years of precedent that limited the ability of Congress and states to adopt progressive laws safeguarding workers and consumers. The key, of course, is that Donald Trump got to pick three justices of the court, and he picked very conservative justices. I remember after Amy Coney Barrett replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg making two predictions. One is we were going to see a lot of 6-3 decisions, and second, we'd see very few 5-4 decisions in a liberal direction. That was this term. The court decided 60 cases with signed opinions after a brief argument. 19 of them were 6-3, 9 were 5-4. And as you've already said, the 6-3 decisions changed the law in so many major areas, abortion rights, gun rights, separation of church and state, the rights of the administrative agency, rights of Indian tribes. What's important to remember is that in each and every one of these cases, the conservative justices were the majority. They changed the law in a very conservative direction. In each and every one of these cases, the result wasn't about constitutional methodology or precedent. It really was about putting the Republican platform into the Constitution. I mean, that, that in itself is a bombshell. And I just have to say that some months back, when they were clearly already deciding and writing their decisions, we heard reports of Amy Coney Barrett, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito uh, making speeches to various organizations denying that they were judicial activists, or I think Amy Coney Barrett said political hacks. It turns out that that was advance warning. <laughs> they were indeed exactly what they decried, judicial activists, partisan and political. Uh, and I think you wrote in the L.A. Times right after Alito's draft was leaked to the press and everywhere else. And again, in the last few weeks that the judges, as you just said, the justices were not arguing methodology principles or precedents, but were making the Republican platform constitutional law. So. One, I want to ask you how unusual this is and how you explain it. I think what's unusual is how far to the right the court is at this moment in time. The reality is that we haven't had a liberal Supreme Court since 1969 when Earl Warren and A. Fortas retired. There's been a Republican majority since 1971. But though it was conservative, there were moderate conservatives. 
Let me go to the last major Supreme Court case that reaffirmed Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. It was a five to four decision, but what's forgotten is all five justices in the majority who reaffirmed Roe were Republican appointees to the Supreme Court. Harry Blackman had put there by Richard Nixon, John Paul Stevens had been put there by Gerald Ford, Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy had been put there by Ronald Reagan, David Souter had been put there by the first President Bush. But there's no such thing as a moderate Republican now. Now the conservatives on the court are so far to the right. And I think an underlying question at the end of this term is, given how politically polarized our society is, what will it mean to have a Supreme Court that's come down so decisively on one side and so far to the right at that? Yeah, these are really important questions. And I want to go into each one of them, but just to say, you know, that there was some confusion after Roe was overturned, at least in the media reports that I was watching that, you know, Roberts did not want to overturn Roe, but agreed. So some were saying it was a 5-4 rather than a 6-3 decision, but then in the end it was a 6-3 decision. And of course, that raises the whole issue that you're really putting forward in other words, and that is about the legitimacy of the court. And many have pointed out that the three new justices, that of all of the conservative justices, only one was put in place by a president who won the popular vote. And this seems pretty significant, that these decisions go against what the majority of Americans want. In the fall, Gallup poll did a survey that showed that the Supreme Court has lowest approval ratings in history, 40% approval, 53% disapproval. In June, before Dobbs, Gallup did another poll that had 25% of American people expressing confidence in the Supreme Court. Then Dobbs came down on June 24th. According to a CNN poll, two-thirds of the American people believe that Roe should not have been overruled. What will this mean for the court's legitimacy in the long term? I don't think there's any way to know. Will this cause people to become politically mobilized? Will this cause, especially women, but men as well, to turn out in places like North Carolina or Nevada or Arizona, let alone Texas. More progressives coming out to vote in California, New York, isn't going to change the outcome of the Electoral College or the composition of the Senate. But if they mobilize in places like the ones I mentioned, it could change the composition of the Senate and the House and make all the difference. Right. Before we go into, you know, that is what can be done in a way, I want us to go over for the sake of the listeners, um, the decisions themselves. And I guess starting with the most radical, the decision to overturn Roe, and then to look at, we'll go religion, then administrative law and Second Amendment. I think to look at them, uh, I'd like you to point to what is originalist or not in their arguments and what is contradictory. Sure. Well, let me start with Dobbs. There, Justice Alito writes, joined by Thomas Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, and he says a right should be protected by the Constitution only if it's in its text, was part of its original meaning, was a long, unbroken tradition of protecting it. He says as to abortion, it's not in the Constitution. It wasn't part of the original understanding. And there wasn't a right to abortion until 1973. Therefore, he says, Roe was wrongly decided. But what makes this so radical is 
there are so many rights that the court has protected that don't meet those criteria. Think, for example, of the right to marry or the right to procreate, the right of parents to have custody of their children, the right to keep the family together, the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children, the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right of consenting adults to engage in same-sex sexual activity, the right of competent adults to refuse medical care. All of these are rights recognized by the Supreme Court, even though they're not in the text, not part of the original meaning, there was no long unbroken tradition. In fact, Justice Thomas, in a concurring opinion, urges the Supreme Court to overrule the precedents that have protected the right to purchase and use contraceptives, the right to engage in private consensual homosexual activity, and the right to same-sex marriage. And what about, in his own case, the loving decision, the right for interracial marriage? Is that included or is that was left out? <laughs> Justice Thomas is a self-described originalist. And originalists say the meaning of the Constitution is fixed when it's adopted, and it can change only by amendment. And you look at the law and practices at the time a constitutional vision was adopted to see what it means today. Well, so many states had laws that prohibited interracial marriage in 1868. As recently as 1967, when Loving versus Virginia was decided, 16 states still had laws that prohibited interracial marriage. So I don't know how Loving versus Virginia could be justified from an originalist methodology. I want to know what you think about the right to privacy, because those exact words also do not appear, right, in the Constitution, but they're implied. And obviously, for Republicans who are traditionally more libertarian in this sense of individual rights, that where they want to exercise the right of privacy, they'll agree with it. But on matters pertaining to sex and contraception and abortion, clearly they don't. So could you elaborate a little bit on that and the danger that is inherent in, in this decision? The Constitution, the, the, both the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, says the government can't deprive anyone of liberty without due process of law. Since the 1920s, the Supreme Court has said that under the word liberty are protected crucial aspects of autonomy, even though they're not enumerated in the Constitution. Those first cases were about the right of parents to control the upbringing of their children. Subsequent cases are in the areas I mentioned. They include Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, that said there's a right to purchase and use contraceptives. If you follow Justice Alito's reasoning from Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization, then hard to see how any of these rights would still be constitutionally protected. What about the 14th Amendment? You know, these are the post-Civil War amendments that gave rights. And also, is it? I think I read somewhere that the word bodily autonomy is included there. It's not. Oh. The word liberty is the word in the 14th Amendment. The first section of the 14th Amendment says no state can deprive any citizen of the privilege of immunities of United States citizen nor denied any person life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor denied any person equal protection of laws. Those are the words. And it's interpreting the word liberty that the Supreme Court has said there's constitutional protection with the right to privacy. Right. So then let's go from there to the decision on New York's guns uh, and whether or not you see a contradiction there. It involves a 1911 New York law, the Sullivan Act, that restricts being able to have weapons in public. 
And it says, in order for someone to have a concealed weapon, they needed a permit. In order to get a permit, they need to show cause for having a concealed weapon. The New York court said a person would have to show a safety need for having a concealed weapon. And I should point out, California has an identical law in the sense that in order to have a concealed weapon, a person needs a concealed weapons permit, and they'd have to show cause, a safety need for a concealed weapon. The Supreme Court, in a six to three decision, declared this unconstitutional. Here, Justice Alito wrote the, I'm sorry, just Thomas wrote the opinion for the court, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, as well as just Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Here, Justice Breyer wrote the dissenting opinion and was joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. What was most striking to me was that the Supreme Court provided more protection for Second Amendment rights than any other rights in the Constitution. I wasn't surprised that the Supreme Court declared the New York law unconstitutional. I expected that from oral argument. I wasn't surprised that the Supreme Court said there's a right to have weapons in public, even concealed weapons. I expected that from oral argument. What I didn't expect was how the court did this. For all other fundamental rights in the Constitution, the government can interfere with them if the government can show its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. And it's got a label, strict scrutiny. So when it comes to freedom of speech or free exercise religion, or race discrimination. The government can do those things, but it has to meet a very high standard. It has to show its action serves a compelling purpose, and there's no other way to achieve it. Justice Thomas's majority opinion expressly rejected that approach. He said states can regulate guns only if it's a type of regulation that was historically allowed. He says the Second Amendment right takes precedence over all other interests. Now, never has the Supreme Court said freedom of speech or free access religion or the prohibition of race discrimination takes precedence over all other interests. For any other right, the government can interfere if it's got a compelling interest. But here, the government can regulate guns only if it can show that historically it's a type of regulation that existed. Is there a contradiction in their insistence that abortion is an issue that has to be left to the states, but gun regulation is not? There's a crucial question throughout constitutional law of what should be left to the political process and when should the courts get involved. In the context of abortion, Justice Alito's opinion said, we're going to leave the issue of abortion to the political process. In the context of guns, Justice Thomas's opinion said, we're not leaving this to the political process. The courts are going to aggressively protect gun rights. One of the things that's particularly troubling is Justice Thomas, even though it's not an issue in this case, said the Second Amendment protects the kinds of guns that didn't exist in 1791. It's not limited to the type of firearms that existed then. But states, in their ability to regulate, are limited to the kinds of actions that states could have taken in 1791. So what does that actually mean in terms of the kinds of guns that would be allowed and those wouldn't? I don't think we know at this moment what it will mean beyond it's going to lead to challenges of gun regulations of all sorts. I think when it comes to bans on assault rifles or bans on large capacity magazines for ammunition, I think that those didn't exist in 1791. But unless the state can show it's the kind of regulation that existed then, the state's going to lose. 
and there'll be the right to have these guns and these large magazine ammunitions. I mean, it's also very astounding that these decisions came down the same week that there was, what, two mass shootings? And they're just tone deaf, you know, to what's going on in the society, or at least say they are. When I read the Supreme Court's decision in the gun case on Thursday, June 23rd, the two words you just used came to my mind, tone deaf. Mm. It was right after the massive shooting in Buffalo, and then the tragic school shooting in Uvalde. Justice Breyer began his opinion by reciting the number of people who die every year for firearms, and specifically mentioned the Buffalo and Uvalde shootings. Justice Alito, in a very sarcastic concurring opinion, said, I don't understand how this is relevant to the question before us. Well, it's pretty interesting because, you know, they uh, this is a different question, but those who support unlimited gun rights say that it's not the problem of the guns, it's the people. And yet now we just saw in this horrific assassination of Japanese uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe that the gun that was used was homemade because guns aren't legal there. But on the other hand, I think they said that only 10 people died uh, of murder in the last year there because they don't have access to these kinds of weapons. Just a comment. <laughs> yes. I don't know. So obviously, I think what you just said, Erwin Chemerinsky, is the key that they cut themselves off from popular opinion and don't think that these issues are relevant. But, you know, and I'm asking you as someone who is not a lawyer, but I do remember the Supremacy Clause and McCulloch versus Maryland that established the supremacy of the federal constitution over states' constitutions. And am I wrong to even be thinking of this in terms of contradiction when they say that abortion can be left to the states, but not the regulation of guns? What the conservatives would say on the Supreme Court is that gun rights are explicitly protected by the Second Amendment. Abortion's not explicitly protected by the Constitution. Therefore, when it comes to guns, the court can strike down laws. But when it comes to abortion, it's all left to the political process. But let's pause for a moment here. Think about the Republican platform. It was against abortion rights. It strongly favors gun rights. It's in favor of prayer in schools. It's in favor of aid to religious schools. It wants to limit the administrative state. Unless you believe that the framers of the Constitution and the current Republican platform are identical, what you see is what's going on. Conservative justices are reading their conservative values into the Constitution. Well, let's take the religion, because I think that's the issue of religion is very important. And I know, you know, when these laws were coming down, my own students, you know, I teach in a Catholic school, were saying, well, what about Jews? And what about, you know, Muslims who don't have these beliefs about when life begins, for example? You know, and they were saying, is this just Christian law that they're talking about? How do you see these decisions on the separation of church and state, allowing school prayer, et cetera? There were two cases about separation of church and state. One was Carson versus Macon. There are parts of the state of Maine that are too rural to support public schools. Those areas, school administrative units, give money to parents to send their children to private school. Maine says that the money must be used in secular private schools. It can't be used in, quote, sectarian private schools. Maine says we have an interest in writing a free secular education to every child in Maine. We think it's wrong to tax people to support the religion of others. But the Supreme Court, six to three, ruled against the state of Maine. 
Chief Justice Roberts wrote, joined by the five conservative justices, just Breyer and Sotomayor wrote dissents. Chief Justice Roberts said, whenever the government gives money for secular private schools, it is constitutionally required to give that money for religious education. I think this has enormous implications, but as Justice Breyer said in dissent, it completely ignores another provision of the First Amendment, the Establishment Clause. It's Thomas Jefferson, not a liberal law professor, who said there should be a wall that separates church and state. The court's obliterating any notion of such a wall. And we saw that again in the other religion case, Kennedy versus Bremerton Schools, which came down Monday, June 27th. Joseph Kennedy was a high school football coach. After games, he would kneel at the 50-yard line and pray. In time, students, players from his team, the other team would join him. After time, he began delivering a Christian inspirational message at midfield, joined by the players and sometimes people from the stands. He was ordered to stop doing so. When he didn't, he was suspended, given a poor performance evaluation. And he sued and said, this violated his free exercise of religion, his free speech rights. The Supreme Court six to three ruled in his favor. Justice Gorsuch for the six conservative justices, Justice Sotomayor for the three liberal justices. The court said it violated free excess religion, it violated freedom of speech. But of course, any restriction of prayer in schools restricts the free excess religion and the free speech of those who want to pray. Since the early 1960s, without exception, the Supreme Court has said that prayer in public schools violates the Establishment Clause, even voluntary prayer. Now the court's allowed prayer back in, and at the very least what it means is that before the school day, at recess, at lunch, after school, any teacher can pray in the classroom, and any students who want to join can. Prayer is very much back in the public schools. Again, this is, you know, so stunning. I can't, I can't quite deal with it, except to say that, you know, perhaps having this kind of activity will turn more students away from it because it will seem forced to them. But what about, what is originalist about these kinds of decisions when, as you just said, the establishment clause is very clear? I think this case shows the absurdity of originalism. What an originalist would have to ask is, What did the framers in 1791 think about high school football coaches at public schools engaging in prayer on the field? (laughs) Just to ask that question shows its absurdity. And yet Justice Gorsuch, writing the majority opinion, overruling a precedent since 1971, said that we determine what violates the Constitution by looking solely at history from the framers' perspective. All right. Well, we don't have a lot of time left, and I wanted to get to what you said, I think, in your SACB uh, op-ed and also in one from the Bar Association when you said they were just getting started and that there's worse to come. And I saw an article recently that that Lochner may come back or that democracy itself, in, in other words, the way that we determine our elections is also up for consideration. Can you uh, give us some glimpse into these uh, future mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it's worse than the overruling of Rao or the things we've been talking about, but I don't think this court is anywhere near done. I think it's much more this court just beginning. 
So there's going to be two cases argued in the Supreme Court in October as to whether overruled precedents that have allowed college universities to engage in affirmative action. I think everyone expects that the Supreme Court is going to overrule those decisions and say college universities, public and private, can't engage in affirmative action. There's a case going to be argued in October about whether or not a business owner, based on her religious beliefs, can discriminate against gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals and service providers here refusing to serve a same-sex wedding. There's a case about whether the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional in giving a preference for Native American parents and adoption of Native American children. There's a couple of cases involving the Voting Rights Act and what's sufficient to prove race discrimination in voting. And at the very end of June, the Supreme Court took a case that to me is very frightening, and it's about what's called the independent state legislature theory. And here it's, does only the state legislature in a state determine who won the elections there, whether for members of Congress or the president? Do state courts get to interpret the state laws and enforce the state constitution? And I worry here that the conservatives in the court are going to give all the power to the legislature. So in a presidential election, they can award the electors to whoever they want, no matter what the popular vote, or the state legislature can gerrymander however it wants, and state courts are powerless to deal with it. All of that's on the docket and will be heard just in the fall of 2022. It's stunning, and it also raises the question about the separation of powers and the relative, let's call it, weight of the various branches of government. It's all tilting toward this unelected nine. So I think, Erwin, in the last minute, this takes us to what can be done. And you mentioned earlier about some state actions that could be done. We've heard from the Democrats that we need to vote. But, you know, in the last three elections, more people turned out than ever before because we saw such terrible things in store if we didn't. You, on one of the last times I interviewed, you talked about introducing term limits to all federal justices and packing the court. But none of that has come to pass. Biden has said that he doesn't want to pack the court. We can't seem to get to ending the filibuster. Today, Biden signed an executive order protecting the right of women to have abortions. But what other things can be done? And how do you see this? There's so many things that can be done. For some issues, they're now in the political process. So we need to protect abortion rights at the state level. In California, there's a right to abortion, but we need to secure it in other states. Congress could pass a national law creating abortion rights. Of course, if there's a Republican president, a Republican Congress, they could pass a national law outlawing all abortions in the country, preempting California laws. I think it's really important that there be a Democratic Senate and hopefully a Democratic House because otherwise the Republicans aren't going to let President Biden get any judges confirmed, not just for the Supreme Court, but federal district courts or courts of appeals. I think it's really important that people get involved politically. Elections matter. Had Hillary Clinton won in 2016, and she picked those three justices, we wouldn't have been talking about any of these cases today. No, we'd be living in an entirely different world. I want to thank you so much, Erwin, and also invite you back as we see what happens next term. Um, I hope that your worst fears do not come to pass, but I, I know we can't rely on that anymore. And I'm going to go with your words. People all need to get involved to prevent this from happening. And that was Erwin Chemerinsky. He is dean of the University of California's Berkeley School of Law. 
Erwin Chemerinsky, thanks as always for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased to have Tarek Ali back with us. We're going to be talking about the resignation of Boris Johnson, who has finally been forced to resign, brought down by the Tory ministers who had just had enough of his narcissism, contempt for truth, his partying and lies. The avalanche of resignations from his party this week signaled the end for Johnson, who grudgingly and finally resigned, though he vowed to stay on until a new leader was chosen. The Tories, or the Conservative Party, finally decided that Johnson's personality and conduct had gotten in the way of his politics, which they mostly support. This obsessive focus on his personal conduct obscures his disastrous political record, one that Keir Starmer's Labor Party isn't really challenging. So Boris Johnson is going, but Britain is still stuck with the same right-wing politics. Tarek Ali recently tweeted that the Tories have always been ruthless in dumping prime ministers who might lose them the next election, Thatcher, May, and now Johnson. But Labour is only ruthless in removing a leader who poses a threat to the extreme center. I've invited Tarek to explain, but first let me reintroduce him. Tarek is a writer, filmmaker, public intellectual, and longtime activist. He's the author of, I think I counted it, something like three dozen books on history and politics, seven novels that are translated into a variety of languages, as well as scripts for stage and screen. He's an editor of New Left Review and publisher of Verso Books. His latest book is the just out Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. Other recent books include The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold, published in 2021, the Dilemmas of Lenin, Terrorism, War, and Empire, Love and Revolution in 2017, and The Extreme Center, A Warning in 2015. I've left out a ton of other books, but I thought those would be the most interesting. Tarek, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Susie. We're living in interesting times, <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly. You, and, you guys have just gone through the drama and exhaustion of what we've been through as well, in a sort yeah. of different way. But let me just ask you to give our listeners a kind of overview, if you could, that he finally decided to resign after the so heard resigned one after another, some 60 years. So maybe you could just give our listeners a little bit of the steps and then say, you know, what allowed him to hold on to office for the time that he was able. Well, he's been in office for three years and a bit more. And I think it's important to remember that he was elected by a public which felt that no other political party and not even other conservatives could implement Brexit. That is the referendum that took Britain out of the common market. And Boris's big strength was that he said, this is a democratic decision by the people of Britain, taken on the largest ever vote in our country's history, and I'm going to implement it. It really was as simple as that. A. Secondly, the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the most left-wing leader the Labour Party has ever had, was 
confused on this particular issue, not on a personal level, but because his party was all over the place. And ultimately, what Corbyn and his colleagues had said they would never do, that is reject the will of the people, regardless of whether they agreed or not. His left-wing colleagues, John McDonnell in particular, started flirting with and then had crazy ideas about a coalition government that would have a second referendum. And that just sunk them. In my opinion, that's one of the key issues. Thirdly, and this shouldn't be forgotten, is that the right wing of the Labour Party, some of them openly, some of them secretly, wanted Boris to win. Given the choice of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, the bulk of the Parliamentary Labour Party wanted Boris to win, as did the Financial Times, as did the Guardian, as did the New Statesman, which refused to call for a vote for Corbyn, as did the entire liberal media, and the Tories, of course, were, were for him. So Tony Blair, the former prime minister, said that people can't vote for Corbyn. We have to vote to defeat Corbyn. Similarly, Peter Mandelson and all the old new Labour types. So, you know, if you go back and read what the Financial Times and The Economist and The Guardian and all these people were saying at the time, given what they're saying now about the same Boris, he hasn't changed. It's just astonishing. So it was a combination of events and policies and politics that drove them into making sure that Boris won and the failure of the Labour Party in the last stages to fight, because it was very deeply split and a huge campaign, I'm sure helped a great deal by the intelligence agencies, was underway to discredit uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So the Tories won and they won a huge majority. So now the question is this. Having won, he took Britain out of Brexit and then couldn't handle the ensuing economic problems. And then COVID hit. And COVID then presented a new challenge, which on one level, Britain handled quite well in terms of vaccinations. It was very speedy and very quick. So he did take credit and received credit for that. And then he began to do foolish things like having said no one can have parties at home, organizing mm. one. Now, on one level, this is very trivial because, you know, a party is a party. But many people felt, well, why were we stopped? He himself said no one should have been stopped, actually. It was a big mistake saying that people shouldn't have parties at home. But it began to stick, some of this stuff, and it blew up most recently when his deputy chief whip, the man in charge of discipline in the Conservative Party, was complained about he's gay by two gays at a private club, a gay club. They said he made unwanted passes and he pinched us, and his name happens to be Pincher. So <laughs> Boris's response was, Pincher by name and Pincher by nature. These things happen. <laughs> so that annoyed people saying, why didn't you sack him immediately? He said, mistake, I regretted that. So all these things, basically, it's not that they're unimportant on some levels, Susie, but they don't add up. 
the central issue, in my opinion, why the Tories dumped him, is that they were scared he couldn't win them the next election. And he, he knew knows that because one of his replies in his speech says, what's the big hurry? You know, we're still only a few points behind Labour. We would have recovered. But then it's that when he said, once the herd mentality takes a grip, it's very difficult to get it under control. And I have to say on that, he's right. I don't think that the Labour Party, as presently constituted, with its current leadership, can defeat the Tories unless they... I think the Tories will possibly lose their majority. And the thing is, they have no one to do it. So it was the fear of losing an election. And as you pointed out earlier, this is what really gets the Tories. They don't care what the status of the Prime Minister is. They they dumped Thatcher because she was going down in the opinion polls and many who disliked her, not that many disliked her inside the party, but they said she's going to be a loss and her cabinet went, very similar exercise, went to see Margaret Thatcher and said, you've got to go, we can't carry on supporting you. And she left in tears, as the photographs show, but she had to go. Boris hung on a bit longer after being told this. Why? Because he knows that a lot of these people in his cabinet are totally dependent on him. Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, is not dependent in a financial sense because he's incredibly wealthy, as is his wife, who was recently caught not paying her taxes or paying them in a foreign domicile. So none of them, honestly, his successors who are lining up add up to very much. And today's papers are saying that Downing Street is describing Rishi Sunak as a treacherous bastard, which is obviously coming from we know who. Before you go into all of that, I want to come back and pick apart some of this. But it's really, as you were speaking, Tarek, I was thinking how similar it is to the United States in which the Democrats and everybody did everything they could to make sure that Bernie Sanders, the sort of, you know, counterpart of of Jeremy Corbyn, would not be the candidate. The difference, though, and, and here, and it's a big one, even though Boris Johnson seems to have forgotten it, that Britain's a parliamentary system, not a presidential one. And so I saw one thing in the Financial Times where he said, but I had a mandate. And someone reminded him, well, it doesn't matter because it's about yeah. the leader of the party, not whether you're not a president, you're a prime minister. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to ask one other question before we go into all of that about the forces that drove him out and, and what differences they have. But first, You've been writing about, and it's been news everywhere except in the U.S., where the U.S. dominates everything, the January 6th insurrection hearings. But there's been a a long strike of the railroad workers, and there's been a series of strikes in Britain. And I just wonder if that plus inflation and the fact that the British economy is really in a bad shape had anything to do with it. Everybody that talks about, you know, what's going on only mentions his personal conduct as if this is simply about personality. Do you think the strikes had a, you know, any role? I don't think so. I would like to say it did, but it really didn't. And the reason is simple. There was no disagreement between the Tories on how to deal with the strike. They haven't decided to crush it. They threatened to bring in scab labor just Mm -hmm. to put pressure. 
and make the leader of the RMT was so good and cool and brilliant on television, he just sort of defeated them every time. He didn't lose his cool. He became a Twitter hero. You know, just completely young people were tweeting him. They had never heard any union leader talk to politicians and media ghouls in this particular way. And he really had. So the RMT strike was very popular. Between 57 and 67 percent of the population supported the railway workers. They got a lot of support outside tube stations and railway stations and places like that. So it would have to be a crazy Tory leader who sent in scabs and did try to do what Margaret Thatcher did to the miners. No, I think there was no big movement from below. This is largely an internal Tory party and the rest of the party has absolutely not a clue what to do with the economy or with the crisis that is brewing. They don't take it as seriously as they should. But then, Susie, they're helped by the fact that Keir Starmer is such a conservative himself that he's been more or less, it's very difficult to tell his views apart from that of the Conservative Party. One thing on which he opposed Boris was Europe. He's done that too, saying there's no circumstances in which I as Prime Minister would withdraw from Europe, which, by the way, is now also the view of dominant sections of the City of London. Having gone through all this, they don't want another upheaval. So I think there'll be negotiations with the Europeans to try and ease uh, matters for both sides, but there's not going to be a withdrawal. And within the Tory party, the hardcore Remainers are the hardest people against uh, Boris, and they've managed to get everyone now. Something very funny, leading RMT, railway workers, activists, just put up a tweet. He said, when we went on strike with 59,000 members, we got a lot of support. We never thought that the people who would really mimic us the first would be the Conservative Party in the cabinet and getting rid of their boss. So that's the mood, really, among certain people. But it's not so far developed into anything that could be called a movement from below or things like that. I mean, people are angry with the Labour Party and people, even conservatives, say there's no one really to replace Boris. If you look at today's story papers, the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, the headlines are just savagely against the traitors who brought Boris down, totally wow. pro-Boris. So we shall see. Well, I want to ask about, you know, the candidates, but you just talked about Brexit and it, even Boris at the beginning was sort of flexible on this issue before yeah. he became prime minister and then read the winds. And he went for a hard Brexit rather than what I guess what you would call a soft landing. Gary Young has written in the nation that Boris's resignation represents the beginning of the end of Brexit's impact on domestic politics. Do you see it that way? And you began to talk about the hardcore remainers in the party and others. And I just wondered how much, if it had anything to do with the forcing of Boris to go and, and what differences within the Tory party it may reflect. Well, I think uh, 
most of the people who hated Boris because of Brexit weren't in the government. They weren't given jobs. So they moaned on from the sidelines, and they've been doing that since Brexit. And I think Brexit as a Brexit stopped being a big issue with the plague, with the lockdown. That's when people said, we've got other things on our plate to think about. No one raises it, and very few have demanded a return to Europe. But the irony of this, Susie, is this, that Corbyn proposed to people around him when he was leader that Theresa May has got a perfectly valid plan for a soft Brexit. And why don't we go along with it? Starmer opposed it because he thought if they did that, Corbyn would get a lot of credit and it would be in the public eye nonstop having done this. And they would not be able to dump him so easily. Totally unprincipled. Jeremy's comrades, John McDonald, Diane Abbott, and these other people, you know, started attacking him for even suggesting that at that time, because they were in favor of a new referendum. So had that happened, and had Jeremy said, we will support the soft Brexit, Boris wouldn't have been leader of the Tory party. Wow. She would have achieved that, and that would have been that. She might not have won again, but the vote might have been very close with that issue totally uh, neutered. And Boris could have raged and raved from the sidelines, but Brexit, a soft Brexit, would have been done. But that they didn't allow to happen either. So, you know, the British politics is in a very, very weird state. I think Labour now is going very strong. It knows it can't win on its own. It's going very strong for some sort of pact with the Lib Dems. And then there's the Scottish referendum. The SNP, the Scottish National Party, has demanded another referendum. She's come out quite hard for it, Nicola Sturgeon. And Starmer's first response was Labour is never going to agree to have another referendum. So he is alienating people right, left and centre. But a lot will depend on what happens in the House of Commons. The way Starmer is going, quite honestly, I don't know whether people in Labour strongholds even might feel, what well, you know, let's vote Lib Dem this time, because he's offering nothing. Well, that's what Absolutely. I was going to ask you. Does he represent any kind of threat? You mentioned that they dumped Boris because he was losing or the Tories were losing. But of course, the other side of it is what does Labour recommend in its place? And since we mentioned Corbyn, he stood for the issues that were affecting inequality. But what does Starmer stand for? Starmer stands, basically, he's a factional maneuverer. He stands for moving the party to the right and moving it to the right in such a way that it can never, ever be taken again by the left because Corbyn's victory was a very deep shock for them. They haven't recovered, and so they're expelling. I think he's expelled the largest number of Jews from the party because they don't support Israel. I don't think so many Jews have ever been expelled from the Labour Party, as has been done by Keir Starmer, and accusing them of anti-Semitism. And one of the things, Susie, which I have to say is that one of the people trying to fight for the leadership, Nadim Zahawi, is an arms dealer. 
and a total rogue. And the letter he wrote Boris resigning said, you know, but praise Boris for having saved the country from that dangerous anti-Semite Jeremy Corbyn. Now, to be called a dangerous anti-Semite, I mean, Jeremy really should take this to court. It was written on Treasury note paper. It's been published in the press, though, very carefully, because they don't want to be caught up. But if I were him, I'd take this straight to a lawyer and say, sue him. It wasn't said in Parliament, it's written on paper. And take on these guys, which he hasn't done ever since these anti-Semitic charges were begun by Starmer. It's really quite incredible in Britain that this is the main issue. You know, I remember living there thinking that the Tory party was the most anti-Semitic and more or less openly so. But it seems like this has replaced the ill of communism for uh, previous generations, that this is some kind of charge that they can level against opponents or against the left. It's really quite... Oh, you're right. It's basically against the left. Why? Because the left criticizes Israeli policies and defends the Palestinians. They said they want to rub that out of the British political system. And when they were planning to suspend Jeremy, the Jewish Board of Deputies, who support the Conservative Party, by the way, were telling everyone, we've made sure Corbyn will never be allowed into the Labour Party again. And we said, oh, we'd see. Well, they were right, I'm afraid. Well, so, yeah. yeah, I think this is really important. And it seems like only uh, Britain is vulnerable in in this way to these charges. It doesn't stick uh, elsewhere. And I think you're absolutely right, Tarek. This is about the threat of the left more than anything else. And we saw <laughs> it here. They didn't, they never, uh, you know, labeled Bernie as an anti-Semite. Yeah. Uh, but, but nonetheless, let's go back to the conservatives because I want to get some sense of, you know, the politics. Will, will the politics of his, of his successor really be any different? You know, maybe just the personal conduct. And, and who are some of the candidates that we'll be hearing from? Well, the main candidate is the Rishi Sunak of Indian extraction, multimillionaire, his wife, uh, even richer. So he has no problems. And, you know, he probably doesn't need to get tips from the oligarchs or or anyone else because he's got enough money and he might well use that or get his minions to use that to say that is not going to happen under my government but then there is the guy who was made a chancellor three days before he stabbed Boris in the front, this arms dealer Nadim Zawi of Iraqi Kurdish extraction, strong supporter of the uh, Iraq war. Then there's Liz Truss, the British foreign secretary, who quite honestly, if you speak to someone informally from the foreign office, just burst out laughing when you ask, what is she like? This issue is a total, total dodo. Then there is Sajid Javed, another former chancellor, is in standing. Then there's uh, Luella, who is the attorney general, totally useless. Then there's the home secretary, Preeti Patel, who is thinking about standing. She's the one who's packaging refugees off to Rwanda. And she is the one against whom the British Navy today said they're not going to carry out her orders not to pick up refugees from the channel, you know, who are in trouble. The Navy said that just today. And then there's sundry 
Tories, white-skinned Tories, all the ones I mentioned are brown-skinned. Uh, then, then there are white-skinned Tories. Gove, who's the most senior of them, has decided not to stand. Dominique Raab, another senior Tory, both of them not unintelligent, at least they would, you know, I mean, we wouldn't agree with either of them, but they could make prime minister. They're not standing at all. So we'll see what the final list is. And the way the Tory party votes, they choose two candidates, and then the last two on the short list have to be voted for by the ordinary members of the Conservative Party. So from that point of view, it's quite democratic. They choose to decide between them. So we'll see what happens. It's very difficult to predict. The betting is on uh, Rishi Sunak, because he's quite a smoothie, clever operator. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> young, etc., etc. So uh, he he could well turn out to be the Obama of the Conservative Party. Well, just you know, in terms of Britain itself, the economy seems to be in much worse shape than the rest of Europe. I just heard a report that inflation rate is highest there, and I just wondered if the Conservatives have any differences about how to deal with the economic performance. Well, their differences, they have some differences, you're right. Rishi Sunak is not for lowering taxes. He's come out and said, let's be serious, the country is in an economic crisis, and this is not the time to uh, lower taxes. The For this too, he's been attacked by all the others, saying, you know, this is what the Tory party stands for, We, do, you know, and... Uh, uh, one Tory said, you know, I, I never knew Rishi Sunak was a communist. And you've got to understand that the Tory party over the years, from Thatcher onwards, has gradually been moving to the right. And it's now, I don't know how further right it can go, but it contains a lot of, as the Chinese comrades used to say, freaks and monsters. <laughs> and and uh, we, we'll see what they come up with now. Boris, to be perfectly frank, was the best they had because he could at least communicate with ordinary people and joke and make them laugh. And that counts for something in this country. It shouldn't, but it does. The other point, Susie, which I've been worrying about, I've been wondering about, is why didn't Boris just go to the palace, bike over to the palace, take off his helmet, see the Queen and ask her to dissolve Parliament? Now, I wrote this in a blog several weeks ago. Now we know that he did think about it. And in the press, there's speculation that he got a very firm message behind the scenes, that there was no way the Queen was going to intervene in the internal life of the Conservative Party and allow him to dissolve Parliament. So much for that, i.e. the monarch has no powers. So he could still have done it, but it would have meant having a public row with the monarchy, and he's too much of a monarchist to do that. A Republican Conservative could might well have done that and said, well, why should you decide? Anyway, this is the Prime Minister of the day asking for Parliament to be dissolved. And then we'd have had a general election within two months, and it could have been quite interesting. Last question, Tarek, and that is, you know, you wrote an entire book about the extreme centre, 
And, you know, it's this sort of neoliberal politics has been discredited everywhere. And it seems that, you know, this is still the choice for, let's call it, the ruling parties, especially in Britain. So um, you also wrote in your tweet that the Tories have been ruthless in getting rid of their opponents, who they think will lose the next election. You said that Starmer doesn't represent, you know, any different politics from that of the extreme center. So is that what we're going to be seeing in the next period? Just more of the same? In Britain, I can't see anything else, Susie. It's very depressing. Scotland is a bit different, but if she does, if Scotland doesn't get the right to have a referendum, what are they going to do? I mean, the Scottish Attorney General, Lord whoever, has said it would be illegal to call a referendum without agreement from Downing Street. That is the constitutional position which he confirmed. So what is she going to do? I mean, she has her own problems. So it's uneasy, the mood in the country. And also quite volatile. I mean, the support for the train workers, the RMT strike is very interesting. The other thing is, I think the extreme center now has a grip in most European countries, in Italy, in France, where Macron, who many voted for to stop Le Pen from winning, is now having private conversations with Madame Le Pen. They are discussing, and it's not a secret, under what conditions she will not bring his government down. She said, I won't vote for things we don't agree with, but there can be anything but Mélenchon, who's the leader of the left. So that is going on. In Germany, Angela Merkel has said, I think in an interview, that we couldn't have on our own raised defense spending, which is going to transform the country because it's so huge, had there not been a social democratic chancellor. You need the social democrats to increase defense spending. Italy is in a complete mess. Spain is on the edge. If they have another election, the something worse than the extreme center will probably come to power. But it's not a good situation in the whole of Europe. You know, there's no, not even bread and roses socialism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Yeah, we do have to wrap up. But I was just going to say that everything you said, Tarek, just, you know, amplifies the point that for those in power, the left is the real enemy and that they'll do anything to defeat the left. I know. But the irony is that the left is incredibly weak. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's the irony. Why, why are they scared of the left? I mean, OK, Corbyn and Sanders had mega crowds in a semi-mass movement. But the rest of the left, quite honestly, in this country, even Corbyn's colleagues don't pose a threat to anyone. Just give me quickly one example. When Starmer said that his shadow cabinet members couldn't be seen on the picket line, the shadow cabinet agreed as a whole. We're not going to go. Whereas for Labour MPs to go on picket lines is not so uncommon. When Starmer said any Labour Party member who signs the Stop the War manifesto, which also attacks NATO, he said they could be turfed out. The entire left collapsed 
Some who'd signed withdrew their names. And so the supreme irony now is, and on that we can end, uh, Susie, that the person most upset by Boris's departure is Zelensky. He's rung him up. He said the Ukrainian people had a hero in Boris Johnson. The person who said he's very pleased is Putin. He said it was high time this guy was a joker and we never liked him and he never liked us and that's it. So here we have a strange contradiction for well-meaning nice liberals to make up their minds. Whose side are they on on the Boris issue? Putin, who supports Boris being booted up. Or Zelensky. This is not a debate the left gets into, but it just is quite entertaining reading this stuff in the papers. Well, Tarek, we're going to have to end it there, but I want to thank you so much, as always, for your insights and just tell the audience that they should get the new book, Winston Churchill, His Times, His Crimes. We're going to be featuring it right here on this show. Tarek, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Susie. Bye. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.